0: Before we start this episode, we want to thank our South by Southwest sponsor, Lost Republic. Badass bourbon and rye distilled and bottled right here in Northern California.
1: And the cool part about it is it's founded by Matt Weiss and Colin Harder, who are two best friends from grade school in Santa Rosa. And they really wanted to put California on the map for making great whiskey. And let me tell you, it's delicious. The first time I tried it, I was like, I'm going to have to monitor my intake.
0: And you can find them at lostrepub.com. Or find it at your local pub or bottle shop and tell them that Bitch Talk sent you. It's day three of South by Southwest, and we've got three docs for you and one narrative feature. We're starting out with Shouting Down Midnight, Video Visit, Tomorrow's Hope, and then we end with Shadow. So let's get to it. Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For
1: behind-the-scenes videos and two-minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe.
0: You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear,
1: rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. We are very honored to bring you a documentary that's making its world premiere at South by Southwest 2022, Shouting Down Midnight. And we have with us today
2: the director, Gretchen Stolci. Thank you so much for being with us, Gretchen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, i thrilled.
1: So are we. A lot to say about this film, uh, but can you start by introducing it to our audience?
2: Sure. Um, so it's called Shouting Down Midnight, and it is about the among other things, uh, sort of tremendous upswell of activism that really rippled out from um, Wendy Davis's 2013 filibuster of uh, our states at that point, most restrictive abortion regulation to date. Um, People, it was a a 13 hour event. People tuned in, logged in, drove in um, and ended up really participating um, in the debate itself in a way that largely thanks to social media um, in a way that that is unusual and likely unprecedented. Um, it was just an, it was it was a remarkable feat. It was, um, you know, 13 hours of this one articulate, brilliant person talking about lady parts on the floor of the Texas Senate, which is in itself hilarious and rewarding. <laughs> um, but, it, um, it was also a great day for democracy. I'm not saying democracy is great. I'm, it's pretty good, but I'm just saying, that you know, for, for an elected official to literally represent the words of, um, their constituents, which she did, um, in part, part of what she did that day was to read, um, 65 letters from people who had written in with their personal abortion stories some of them um certainly their opinions um really uh incredibly strong um citizen participation um you know verbatim she start to finish she read these letters she also um really used the filibuster as it's designed in texas which is to force debate um i don't want to get into the us senate filibuster but it it just let's just say it creates a whole different set of Conditions, just a different thing. Shouldn't even have the same name. What she did was to kind of stop the clock and shine a light on this bill um, by actually trying to get accountability from the bill sponsors and the authors. And so asking them, "Why do you think this is a bill about women's safety? Why?" You know, explain yourself. Um, and they often are in too much of a hurry that you know that's that's one thing a filibuster can do is to slow everything down and get people to talk about why they're doing what they're doing so that was really exciting i mean you can tell i'm kind of a policy dork but <laughs> um that was really exciting to me to realize that that's what was happening um not only had the Capitol building itself filled to capacity and um uh but and people in the gallery at the end of the night, you know, by the time no one could contain their rage and their excitement anymore, um, raised their voices and, and literally made it impossible for the senators to take a vote on the bill, which meant that for that day, it was dead. Um, we knew that it would pass eventually, but it was still this remarkably um, exciting symbolic um, moment where people felt like you know we we could find a way to matter. Um, or we are we may find a way for our voices to make it into the policymaking process that affects everything we do. Um, and it's gotten worse in our state, by the way. <laughs> but um you know, the other thing is people had tuned in online. and towards the end of the night, people were, you know, watching the 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 debate, which was really tense because, as it turns out,, um, they really broke from tradition. The Texas Senate, I, I suppose, normally there's all this um, deference granted to someone doing a filibuster. Even if you disagree with what they're doing, you know, you'll slip them a lifesaver, or you'll make sure that you know they're give, granted a lot of respect. This is what we heard from senators afterwards, and that's not what was happening that day. They were actively working to shut her down, and apparently, mm-hmm. that was really alarming for all of the senators. Um, they've they felt like what what is happening to our body, our our lawmaking body here, you know, um, and so all of that was kind of procedural dorky drama <laughs> that I really do did do and did still find really exciting. And um and 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 I think that's what really sort of rippled out for people and created this hope that um, you know wherever you are wherever you're at in your community in your life you 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 can make a difference and um i think we accidentally sort of made this how-to book for you know how to do policy <laughs> so. um i i'll ask more of
0: a production question and then i think we're just gonna get deep into politics <laughs> um, and, and women's and women's right to choose. But um, I wanted to know from your standpoint, what your timeline was, how you put together the story, because there's layers of story and also your access to Wendy. How did that happen?
2: So the timeline was um, I start. Well, the thing happened in 2013. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was working at a day job, which I, I still work at a day job is different um and so when this all happened i thought well i i'm not in a position to make a film i i'm too busy i can't do that and someone else has got this and then nobody was doing it and i thought that's so weird and she was running for governor and i was like well i'll never if she wins i'll never have access to her so i kind of waited until the end of that race to decide whether to make the film or not um and Uh, But I started shooting that year, 2014, there was a one year anniversary party and I was like, I don't even know anybody here, but I got to, I have to make myself go, you know, Um, and so that's technically when I started shooting. Um, it was very haphazard because I had no budget it, until about five seconds ago. It's been completely self-funded and I'm a state employee with no trust funds. So needless to say, I could had to take whatever <laughs> um, and didn't, you know, have the luxury of sort of creating, a, you know, a, a visual style and really making sure that all my interviews were shot on the same camera with the same person and, and all of that, like it just couldn't happen that way um and and the other thing was i mean partly this is sort of uh trying to make myself feel better about all that but it really was like and i wasn't there in the Capitol that morning with cameras um but a lot of other people were a lot of other professionals but also just people with even like flip phones we're talking in 2013 so i thought well i wasn't there but this is a film about all these different perspectives like it was everybody's filibuster and so The visual style is going to reflect that because it's a whole bunch of different cameras and a whole bunch of different production qualities. And that's just what's going to have to be. So um, that's kind of the timeline and what determined the style. Um, I, I, and then you ask about access to Wendy. So we, I work in policy, I work in transportation policy and I found out that we had a friend in common. So someone that I work really closely with and trying to, Change the world in transportation uh, turned out to um, be a good friend of hers, and so I, you know, and this idea kind of showed up. Like I, like I said, I mean, I this is my fourth film. I know they're hard, and I wasn't looking for a documentary to make, <laughs> and I. But you know, I was outside like trying out different colors of blue to paint my bedroom wall, you know, and I was thinking, well, how could you possibly make an interesting film about 13 hours of people in suits going on and on, you know, about rules That's terrible. I mean, how could you possibly do that? The only way to do that, obviously the only way to do it is to try to find those people who wrote those letters. And then, you know, and I thought, well, I'll see, someone's gotta be doing that. And so I just kind of started poking around and asking, but I also thought at the time, I've always thought at the time I had thought like the film will be for me. Like I want to make a film because that's what I do. But surely from this event, we can make some sort of like at the time, I think I was saying like transmedia, you know, where like stuff is on all the different formats, and all the different platforms, but it would essentially be, you know, a set of educational modules, right? Like how to be a lawyer, how to be a Senator, how to be a whatever that, you know, some set like coming off of that event what they were talking about, who they are, what their backgrounds are like, how, how could you end up on the floor you know, when you grow up, little girl? And so I'd always thought, well, that, that would be the long lasting value of it is to come up with something like that. And when I told my friend that we have in common um, you know, about this idea, he was like, she's gonna love that. I will, I will, I will call her. And that's how we met.
1: Wow, I, I I still want you to make those educational videos. Those are so needed. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you say I'm busy, but I mean, <laughs> you do such a great job of making this film exciting. I mean, we knew how it ended. We know how it's going still to this day. But I was still excited, and I couldn't wait for you know the crescendo or, or whatever uh, you want to call it. Um, the, but the the balance of what the takeaway of this film, the balance of, uh, you know, electing the right people who are going to be a voice for all of us, but also of their constituents as their constituents for us not to just vote and Well, I hope you do a good job. Like we still mm. have to have their back and you're showing just this beautiful example of what an impact it makes when we show up for them as well. Um, so, So on the topic of that, if, if you can just talk about connecting with these young leaders of the future, that you highlight because there's so many people on the
2: front lines that you could have chosen. Yeah, no, that's the, that's what's so exciting. It's like, sure. There's like, we have two young women and there's another million of them out there and they're all making change just like Krithika and Sadie. Um, well, Sadie w- became her own phenom right across this, in the parking lot across the street from where I worked all the time. Uh, Cause she was doing her stand against governor Abbott um, to get him to retain funding for breast and cervical cancer screenings um and so i for those days you know i would like circle the block looking for parking and see this like fierce, small person saying like, honk, if you hate cancer, I was like, well, I hate cancer, (laughs) you know? And then, (laughs) um, I think I ran, I found her at a rally one time and someone said, Oh, that's Sadie Hernandez. That's who you were asking about. And, and, and my friend who I was standing with, uh, there knew her and introduced me. So that's kind of how I got, got to know Sadie. And then Krithika, Krithika, I got to know through Wendy's organization, deeds, not words. Um, Wendy started that in 2017, maybe 2018, and we were shooting with them one day, and again, out of the Capitol, and her assistant, Alicia, said, oh, God, we just met this awesome young woman named Krithika. She's like, you know, seven, and she started, I mean, not really, but she was 16, and she started this menstrual equity, you know, program in her high school, and I was like, I got to meet that girl. Who does that when you're 17? What? You know, so that's how we met Krithika, and she was just getting started kind of working they were just getting started working with her um when when we sat down to shoot with her and um yeah and she's just i mean i just i'm i'm like god my i might have a good future if these ladies are in charge of it Mm -hmm. (laughs) like krithika for president like she's just going to be my write-in vote for all ballots right (laughs) We'll join yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. I, that's how I felt. Super inspired. Um, I know we're our times running down, but I did have a question. You have a law degree from Santa Clara University. Do you feel like that that helped you in in um, creating this film?
2: I I think so. I think because I had I had some understanding of kind of how laws work and how they you know make their way from the floor of the senate out to my life um i think it probably was easier for me to think about how to find a story in that um and also i mean i sort of gained law school me kind of made me really appreciate the fact that we live in a country that that we live under the rule of law rather than under just a straightforward dictatorship or something and so even though i am gen x i don't believe in anything but and you know i certainly (laughs) would never commit to loving any leader anybody charismatic or any kind of thing like that i i still did think like oh you know boring as it is and corrupt as it is and imperfect as it is um actually think it's better to have rules that are supposed to apply to everyone. And it's really important that, that we have the ability to try to insist that they do. And so, yay, for the potential of equity, which i I think I did learn, I think I did learn that law really can be a tool for that um, when I went to law school. So even more than sort of the mechanics of law, which is kind of like plumbing, um, I think I really appreciated that it's profoundly, potentially helpful
1: well i know you said you weren't looking for this film but you were certainly the right person to make it uh we really yeah i i hope it goes i hope a lot of people see it um and congratulations on its success thus far it's like it, it brought me like a a realistic hope, you know, not just like a head in the clouds kind of thing, but it's like, you know, that message of, you know, we made out of one today, but that doesn't mean it wasn't still a success in the end. So um, thank you so much for sitting down with us again. We've been talking to Gretchen Stolci, the director of the documentary, Shouting Down Midnight, which is premiering at South by Southwest this year, 2022.
2: Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure.
1: Welcome back to South by Southwest. We are bringing you a documentary short, Video Visit. And we're sitting down with the director, Malika Zuhali-Woral. Thank you so much for being on Bitch Talk.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, can you introduce our audience to Video Visit?
3: Yeah, sure. So um, the film basically tells the story of a program that exists at the Brooklyn Public Library here in New York. And um, the goal of the program is essentially to create a Free video calling service service for um, people whose family members are incarcerated. Um, mostly in the case of this program, people whose family members are incarcerated on Rikers Island, um, which, for those who aren't familiar, is um, the the one of the main New York City prisons and. Um, And also one of the biggest biggest prison New York City has one of the biggest prison systems in the country. Um, So yeah, the goal of the program was that the Brooklyn Public Library, which is a big multi branch um, library system in Brooklyn, uh, wanted to provide a service um, for its patrons for people who use the library all the time, so that they could essentially connect with their family members without having to go through the really traumatic and humiliating process for traveling to Rikers Island. It's um, very, it's a very long journey and it's difficult. And once you get there, it's um, a a very traumatic process to go through. So the the video calling program's goal was to make that easier by making visits available in people's local library branches. Um, That's the kind of general idea of what the film's about, but ultimately, Um, through the stories of two particular mothers and their sons and the staff at the library. Um, Ultimately, I think the film is about two large institutions that have a very different attitude attitude towards people and and the people that they're serving or arguably serving. Um, And ultimately, I think my goal with the film was to kind of contrast the Brooklyn Public Library's very compassionate and caring, approach to serving its patrons with the clear philosophy and attitude of the Department of Corrections, which the the staff at the Brooklyn Public Library have to coordinate with in order to arrange these visits.
0: And I wanted to ask, how were you, um, how were you introduced to this program and why was it so important for you to film it?
3: Yeah, so I was initially, I, I started filming this project quite a long time ago, back in 2017. Um, and I was initially drawn mainly to the, the institution of the Brooklyn Public Library. I happen to live just a few blocks from the, the main central branch, um, which you see the architecture of it in the, mm. in the film. It's a very impressive building. And um, I had kind of learned over the years that um, the brooklyn system specifically uh, was really offering a huge amount of social services often social mm. services that you might expect a government or local government to offer but a lot of them were being offered through the library and that's increasingly becoming true of public libraries across the country that they're offering a lot of social services outside of the, the basic thing we expect from libraries which is the loaning books right um so I kind of initially was drawn by that and then quickly learned about this program um which is very unique in which the Brooklyn Public Library was one of the first institutions to offer this um and increasingly that's that that model is spreading to other libraries around the country um and um at the time they were in the middle of a conflict with the Department of Corrections, which you kind of see playing out in the film, um, which I just thought was so important to capture, even though there are ways in which you could argue like institutional conflict is quite dry, but I felt like that conflict alone really did a lot to reflect on this question of who who the Department of Corrections is ultimately serving and what, yeah and, and, and what they the, the kind of creeping authoritarianism of that of that institution and and the way it partners <laughs> with other, other places like the library
1: that that is what I love about this short is like we can talk all day about why prisons are wrong, but this just adds a deeper sense of what's really happening to these prisoners and their families, and there are solutions to make everyone's life easier, mm-hmm. but often capitalism gets in the way. <clears throat> Absolutely,
3: yeah, and and that
1: was a kind of unexpected kind of angle
3: that came up that came across very clearly during the filming was that um, while we were while we were making this film, it became clear that the Department of Corrections was in the process of trying to pilot for profit programs with some of the big prison telecoms companies um, like Securus, and Securus has it you know has established. Um, itself in prison systems across the country in incredibly disturbing ways. Some, sometimes Securus will um, uh, establish a contract with the prison system that histo- that in the past has even uh, required that the prison system end in-person visits altogether so that the only way you can visit an incarcerated family member is through their um, high-fee telephone service or video calling service. So. Um, yeah i mean i think i was really struck by the way the public library was kind of positing this question of well if these systems are going to exist in the first place why um why should this fundamental right of communication um be a for-profit program and there's a whole infrastructure that already exists across the country in the form of public libraries that could be offering this for free um and you know and one thing that's impressive in new york city although new york city's prison system is not impressive and is deeply problematic and brutal and causing the deaths of many people um, but what what the public library was able to do was was work with the city council to um make this this video calling service completely free and accessible um, and in New York City, they've, they've also made phone calls free on Rikers Island, which, um, again, sounds like it should be a basic human right, but is not the case at all in the rest of the country. Um, that said, uh, as you may or may not have been following, we're, we continued to deal with, like, really horrific things happening on Rikers, especially there was someone who passed, who died on Rikers just yesterday, I believe, just as the governor and the mayor are trying to institute uh, kind of new laws that would put more people on rikers so it's it's kind of a very tense
0: topic right now in new york the new mayor um was there a lot of red tape for you to get this film done because you're dealing with the doc and you're dealing with the public library it just seems like there might be (laughs) some (laughs) some uh some walls and and boundaries in your way that might have been hard to get this done
3: yeah it's a good question um so the the whole film was dependent on uh, a kind of deep and meaningful collaboration with the Brooklyn Public Library um and it was really because of the staff there that I was able to kind of film any of what I was able to film and it was really because they wanted to um communicate the nuances and the complications and the challenges that they were facing in this process um I, I really didn't interact with the Department of Corrections at all uh, which actually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, was, I, I was, yeah, I was happy to not have to do that. And it, and it also connects to this idea that um, one of the staff members in the film says so clearly at one point, which is um, that the, the 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 conflict that happened between the, the Department of Corrections and the public library is really because the Department of Corrections is trying to creep into the space of the public library in terms of the regulations it's trying Mm-hmm. to enforce within the public library. And the nature of the virtual communication is that I can't tell you <laughs> what what you can and can't do on the other end of a phone call. You're in a completely different space. And I think that part of it I found, I found fascinating in this assumption that that the kind of incredibly authoritarian regulations that usually exist on prison property, that the DOC thought that they could enforce those on on the, in, in public libraries that just philosophically and mission-wise are completely in opposition to all of that. Um, so I thought it was very revealing to kind of see how for the staff members of the Brooklyn Public Library, that was the part that like really, you could tell they found most offensive, that they mm-hmm. they really, as as librarians and, and staff at the library, they they had a really strong sense of what the mission of that space was and that it was to be an accepting an open a non-surveilling <laughs> space um, with limited rules and regulations or rules and regulations that were only about collective care and safety and to kind of be experiencing the department of corrections trying to enforce
4: mm-hmm.
3: um and yeah enforce these kind of very brutal requirements was um you know you can see that, that they didn't want that to happen at all. Oh, it's, it's infuriating.
1: Yeah, and it's just such a stark difference. It's so powerful to see these two organizations juxtaposed side by side. Librarians don't get enough money, let's say it. The librarians don't get paid enough and they're the mm-hmm. backbone of our society. So thank you so much for sharing the story. Like I said, this is what documentaries are for, to open our eyes to these possibilities. And there really is another way. So uh, we really enjoyed the short and thank you. And congratulations. We've been speaking with director Malika zuhali of the documentary short video visit. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Hey, Bitch Talkers, we are at South by Southwest, and we are here with producers Tamara Raven and Aaron Steinberg of the short Tomorrow's Hope. Thanks so much for being on Bitch Talk.
5: Thank you for having us.
4: Thank you.
0: Can you please tell our audience what tomorrow's hope is?
4: Yeah, let me see how quick I can do this. Okay. <laughs> On the South side of Chicago, we get to know a community who tried to, who was using early childhood education as a way to try to carve out a future in an environment that's real tough and real foreboding. So in tomorrow's hope, we catch up with three high school seniors who have been in this preschool's first ever graduating class we sort of get a sense of about this community and where they are and how it might've helped them a bit and, and who they are and how this community might be useful to look at for everyone else.
1: Well done, Erin. Yeah. Uh, I, you, you fall in love with these kids right off the bat. Uh, I'm curious to know how you
5: chose just three. You know, it's, you interview all the kids and you see who's available and who has the greatest stories. And these three seem to really, um, you know, tell us what, what we, um, really getting a chance to really get to know who they were. And they were really open to that. And Thomas Morgan, the director, did a really great job um, creating a trust and creating a connection with them. And they just really allowed us to really get into their lives. And we're so grateful that they opened up and shared it with us.
4: And I think they're really complimentary too. Their stories were complimentary, kind of gave you a few angles to look at what's happening.
0: Yeah, Erin, um, could you tell us what the impetus was to actually tell the story and turn it into a doc?
4: Yeah, this is crazy. So uh, the foundation, the Saul Zance Charitable Foundation, which is named for the famous film director, uh, approached Tamara with this idea, hey, we want to do something about this community. Can we do it? And Tamara's like, yeah, you bet. And here's how we're going to do it. And, and Tamra got everything rolling lightning fast. It wasn't long before the pitch was in motion that, that the cameras were rolling. So it was cool to see that happen.
1: Well done Tamara. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, and on Anne. that Appreciate note,
4: that.
1: <laughs> I am I am excited to have two producers on because so rarely do we have two producers from the same project. So can you talk about how you tag team sort of all all the tasks of your role and maybe who worked harder, you know, you can let it all out. This is bitch talk.
5: (laughs) Well, I did obviously, um, (laughs) I'm going to say so. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a huge undertaking. So, um, you have to work with a lot of great people. They say it takes a village to raise a kid. It takes a village to make a movie. Um, so it was, you know, it was a, a big undertaking because we're, weaving in some South Side Chicago history and exploring social justice issues alongside the importance of early childhood education. Um, So we had an amazing producer in Chicago, Trevor Hall. He got the director, Thomas Morgan. They got the DP. We just kept on building and building. We just went for it. Um, And it was an amazing process. I have to give Aaron some big props though. Like he's an amazing partner um he's brilliant and i hate him for that sometimes he's so good at stuff that i'm not good at so <laughs> <laughs> he's incredible so i'm really lucky with the end he's a music composer as well but he is a creative and he um, was able to help when we were in the middle of trying to find all archival footage and he mm. made it happen and he kept on working and working and working to make it done and he still doesn't stop so i'm grateful to have someone who keeps on pushing
4: <laughs> well camera is uh Similarly, she just won't let go. When the going gets tough, she tries harder, really does. And this project, particularly with that archival part of it, as Tamara mentioned, holy shit. If you're a documentary filmmaker and you want to have an archival sequence or sequences as we did in your film, you better budget some time and and frustration for that. (laughs) There wasn't a lot of footage to begin with about these housing projects on the South side. Uh, So finding it and then getting the rights, oh my God. Uh, on the music side, Tamara was so supportive with a lot of great suggestions. So this project was really fun. I just got to say that. that.
0: Yeah, I have a question about really quickly about that um, archival footage. Were there um, were there obstacles trying to find it? D- does Chicago not want to tell that story? Because I-, I feel like that happened in a lot of big cities around that time and it's still
4: happening. Oh, yes. and And yeah. both were true. It was hard to find the footage and there was resistance to it. Uh, But through Tamron's perseverance, luckily some of the footage was not really in in the hands of people who would want to say no.
5: Yeah, I mean, this is an under-resourced area. So surprisingly, a lot of people film this area. Um, So trying to track down footage from that time period, which is not that far (laughs) ago, not that long time ago, um, was hard and some people were actually, filmed it were dead so then finding out who owned that footage you know and tracking it all the way down to Canada someone owned the footage in Canada it was just kept on doing perseverance trying to get the best footage we could possibly can that was available to us and it was um, like Aaron said a long process um, and an expensive process but um, it's worth it to have that background in that time period. Explained.
1: Right, because it gives all the context to what was happening now. And um, on that note, we we obviously are focused on these kids and, and the education that they're getting. But I like the focus and, and the uh, information about investing in the parents as well, because you can give kids all the love and support at, at school, but then they're going home at the end of the day. So can you talk about working with the parents as well? Were they Were they happy to be part of this project? Did you have to nudge a little
5: bit uh, and how that process was? Um, They were open to it. I think they really, they believed in it. They felt supported um, in this program. So this was an education community. So they really worked hard to involve the whole family. They knew they only get it from zero to five. So how do we get the parents to feel invested and be advocates for their kids? And Surprisingly, they all felt like, "Yeah, I can do this. I can fight. I can fight for my kid moving forward." And as you said earlier, that we all the kids graduated from high school.
4: That's an incredible success story.
0: And how are the kids now? Have you followed
4: up or heard from them? Oh yeah, they're doing. They're doing great. Uh, particularly, uh, we've been uh, in a great deal of touch with Jamal, the boy who is a drummer in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tamra. We made a, a short film about the drumline called "Chaotic Drumline Drumming with a Difference." That's at film festivals now. So yeah, we've been working with them, uh, and uh, you know it's been great. So I think we're gonna have an ongoing relationship uh, musically and otherwise uh, because of that. So yeah, it's it's been a real fruit-bearing relationship. Um, along with the educators, we're in touch with them too. So man, this has been such a cool project. I think we both felt energized by the hope of putting out something positive and maybe helpful out there, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and we have to wrap in a minute, but I just have to say, um, one of my notes was prom outfits, damn, because <laughs> that scene, thank you for including that part of their life, because it's so important to, to know that it's not all struggle and pain. Like there's so much joy and fun. Can you just talk about just that scene? Were you there for, for these, you know, the unveiling of their prom
5: outfits? It was just so much fun. I mean, I love that scene, Micho, the editor, edit it together. It's such a, um, like you said, it's such a celebration and and we all, we all graduated high school. We all experienced that wonderful feeling at the end where you're just like, I did it and I get to look good at the end and I get to feel good with my family and get to celebrate. And so, yeah, we had to capture that moment of just that excitement Um, and they were going to celebrate no matter what was happening. And that was beautiful to see.
4: As Tamara said, it's such a point of release and joy. And just as you said, Ange, it's not about, it's not just all misery and struggle. There's joy here. And it's really an important part of the picture, really very much. So thank you for mentioning that.
0: <laughs> Aw, Ange. I know I love Jamal's tuxedo. Um, my last question is, with this film, have there been any interesting conversations spurred from it in terms of talking more about early child education? And will this doc... Is there a life after film festivals for this doc to maybe help try and explain what happened in Chicago?
4: Oh yeah, we're uh, we have more festivals coming up, and we're we're actually trying to get some some other distribution happening. So stay tuned on that front. At South by Southwest, we talked to some real interesting people, including a lobbyist or two, and uh, some people like that. So stay tuned. I I in a way I feel like we're getting going. What do you think, Tamara? Yeah,
5: I mean it doesn't stop after one film festival or or anything, I just always feel like films have a life and if they can really touch you um, in your heart and make you wanna like make, do something about it, I think you keep on pushing that film. And so we have these incredible humans that are in this film and I think you'll, you'll wanna know more about them. And um, I hope you get a chance to meet Portia and Brenda and Jackie and the kids, like, you know, I think we need more people like that in the world. So we wanna keep on sharing that with as many people as possible
0: educationally wise and, and politically wise, this film, there's a lot to say and there's a lot of conversations to be had in terms of, um, was it, pre-K educa- education? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, we could talk about this forever. I know. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. We've been speaking with producers Tamara Raven and Aaron Steinberg from the short doc, Tomorrow's Hope, now featured at South by Southwest. Thank you so much for coming on Bitch Talk. You're the best. Thank you Thanks so much. Thank Congratulations. you.
1: Congratulations. We are here at South by Southwest 2022, really excited to bring you a film called Shadow. And uh, we're sitting down with director Bruce Gladwin and the actor and co-writer, Scott Price. Welcome to the show. Hello. Well, I want to get started here with our director. Bruce, can you introduce our audience to Shadow?
6: Yeah, sure. It's a a 55-minute short feature that is a story about a group of activists that hold a community meeting to bring their the audiences or the community's attention to the fact that artificial intelligence is um having an effect on social dynamics of their community and what they actually discover that their own biases and prejudices are also undermining the success of their cause
0: we We'll get into the heavier stuff, but I, I did love the comedic moments in this film. It, I think it helped balance it out. Can either speak to that?
6: The first thing to say is that this this film is um, is been co-authored by the performers and myself. So there's quite a few um, writers on the piece. And the way the work is created is through improvisation. Uh, and then it's scripted from that. So there's a lot of kind of interactions that just happen, that are unexpected, that often come from mistakes. And we, with the the writing of this film, we really tried to embrace those mistakes. And yeah, we did.
7: Of, we did, we did, we did. The social discomforts
6: yeah. at the start. There's a, a welcome or acknowledgement of country where the activists that are holding the meeting pay acknowledgement to the traditional owners of the First Nation people who uh, technically own the land which that the meeting is taking place on, but they mm. really struggle with the pronouncing of that. that yeah, name,
7: we, um, of yeah that, so we um yeah, so we um so group. we totally like, you know, I mean like you cock it up, we cock it up because mm. like, so because we can't get like like
6: every yeah, pronunciations in we cock it up. And, and you know, for us as white Anglo-Saxon males in a colonial country like Australia, that there's a real pertinence to the, this moment uh, in that one it, for these characters, it kind of indicates uh, their disconnection from you know any cultural connection with uh, mm. the the first language, uh, First Nations people that they're referring to, mm. um, and it's kind of tragic and comic at the same time and I guess uh, Mm. the the mistakes that we kind of and that 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 moment came from an an actual improvisation where one of the actors struggled with the actual pronunciation yeah Um, she did she did it's kind of pertinent to the characters but it's pertinent to us as a as a company Mm. or a group of artists making the work too about our own disconnection
7: yeah. I mean, like you know, blue to white, like you know, like, yeah. So it is actually quite, so it's, like, it's quite tragic because I think, so I think, because the guys can't get white, you know, they can't get pronunciations right as I said, blues. I think you know, it's just you know, I mean, like yeah, a total mess. I think I can speak for my end about it. So mm. yeah, it's um, as you said, but it's a total mess too. Like yeah, I mean, like yeah, to why the guys didn't actually pronounce it like the one Jew properly. So mm. yeah.
1: But that's great. You turned some of the mistakes into mm-hmm. great, powerful moments in the film. So, you know, it's a mistake technically, but it ended up being a standout moment in the film. And, and I wanted yeah. to get back to uh, this originated as a play, correct, at uh, Australia's back to back theater. And then you uh, you took that and uh, turned it into your first feature length film. So can you talk about that? collaborative process of being at uh, scott as well for being an actor and a writer on this and having so many cooks in the kitchen
7: <laughs> uh so um so um yeah yeah so i'm so i'm also what you call i mean, uh, like yeah, a public figure so and an uh, activist roles there so i do a lot of stuff around the joints there but um i think yeah you were white. i mean like Aaron and andrew yeah it's um so it's a place yeah i think so it's, it's about so it's about so disability activism and artificial intelligence there yeah, just to put it in a nutshell i think yeah i mean like yeah like yeah so just how the group comes together so, yeah, to try and help people with disabilities and um has myself here yeah, being like so being autistic yeah so so i've actually know a job as, yeah so so face like a lot of like prejudices and you know people's own like self-awareness and I'm not sure if it was like self guilt or anything like that, about you know, so about the possession of disabilities, and um, yeah, you know, I think you know, like, yeah, so some people just like look at me, think, oh, you yeah, know, who's this like idiot around you, say about me using ableist language, but um, I just get, you know, I mean, I mean, like, yeah, so it's so angry, okay, and I go, well, what have you not seen a person with a disability before, and this is like, um. And, you know, I, they get so shocked about, you know, like, yes, yeah, so just about their own able behaviors. So it's um, prevalent. Mm.
6: And just to give some context, like, the company Back to Back Theatre has been, you know, uh, has existed since 1987. We make contemporary yeah. theatre that is built around a core ensemble of uh, six or currently five actors who, uh, Perceived to be neurodiverse or referred to themselves as being neurodiverse. And Scott is one of the actors within the company. Yeah. And uh, I, was mate- t- so I was a
7: total. So I was just, I was just a pit on the street because I thought, oh, this guy's good. So, um,
6: yeah, I think I was one <laughs> we of want, We wanted guys. to work with you because you're a hugely talented um, actor. Yes. Scott, that's, so, the one, that's the one, please. That's the
7: one. <laughs> That's one, come on, boys. You, you can to do that. That's just me going like, well, you know, I'm talented, this is what I did, and it's like, yeah, we have to be
6: big-headed, yeah. so, and, and yeah. we, we, we make theatre that, you know, is, you know, I was saying it's contemporary um, theatre, and we, you know, we do a lot of touring and we perform in Europe and North America, Asia. Um, and in our own country, uh, you know, in work that's for like made for like arts festivals, essentially. and yeah. So this is really our first venture. Although we've dabbled in small project, this is the kind of the biggest mm. screen based project that we've worked on.
0: There's a moment, uh, well, it's a longer moment in the film where uh, you're hearing the music uh, throughout the film, and then you go out to uh, a hallway, and there's musicians. Um, accompanying the film. And uh, it, it's a whole vibe, I would say. And it kind of, I don't know, I think it heightens the film a bit. Can you talk mm-hmm. about making that choice and showing the musicians in that moment? Because it's its also, um, there's a lot going on in that moment. There's a lot of feelings, there's a lot of mm-hmm. thoughts and conversation. So if you don't mind expanding on that. Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah, well, you know, literally the, the story takes place in a, like a community um, hall or like a community facility and we imagined that the story, you know, this meeting is taking place in one hall, in another one there'll be a band rehearsing, in another one there'll be a life drawing class and
7: um, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. so, yeah
6: i remember that uh, one
7: yes you, that had was, you had fun in
0: that that scene.
7: was the yeah, idea so that no was no spoilers one,
0: no spoilers
7: that was a pretty awkward scene but it's a pretty awkward scene yeah. uh,
6: but uh i guess yeah. it's the thing is going you know playing with that idea that the music is kind of uh are, are the characters actually hearing this music at the time or is it um or is it just kind of overlaid by the the makers at this point and mm. the you know, I really like the idea that at some point we would step outside or the frame would be extended um, and the camera would see the musicians who are actually playing the music live. And um, And that's a band called the Luke Howard Trio. And there's something about that. You know, I think the film plays with this idea of authenticity. And it's often, I think, when you see a work that has people with disabilities in it, it, it somehow... Um, often perceived to be documentary or uh, and this is you know the whole work is really fiction we but we use devices of documentary oh. uh, in the making of the work and there's something about uh, the traditional jazz trio of piano drums and bass which people I think associate with the idea of improvisation or oh. uh, spontaneity and um, improvisation and so there was just this yes. idea that somehow through the music we could kind of reinforce this idea of you know spontaneity improvisation authenticity yeah.
1: Scott I'm interested to hear uh, now that you've been part of your first feature film or you know it's considered mm. a short technically but do you want to yeah. do more film or or is stage mm. your real love uh,
7: well definitely I mean yeah I mean like yeah Andrew yeah I really want to do more film and I think you know, it's probably one based around but um yeah, like I'm doing a lot of like, yeah, I mean, I mean, what's it called? I mean, like, yeah, I mean, like, so live streams myself, yeah, so this is probably, you know, I mean, like, no territory for me, but, um, I think, yeah, this is probably what I want to do. I think, you know, as I said before, like, you yeah, know, I mean, like, I mean, like, yeah, so, so no team back for me, Mazda, yeah, I mean, for the long haul. So I think for me, I think just this is probably what I've been, I guess my career chosen has been part, I wasn't know it's been chosen, but. I don't know. I think yeah, I probably do want to do more films, that's a given. Yeah, to say at
6: least. Yeah. Destiny, Scott. Destiny.
7: Well, it's sounds, it's not so it's not so it's not so much destiny boys. I just think like you know, so I'm in for the long haul, so you know, mm. so might as well, so might as well stick it out.
1: Yeah, and just really happy to learn about back to back theater and Mm -hmm. all the work that you're doing and this film really will spark a lot of conversation and and you know it's still i'm still sitting with it you know Mm -hmm. it's just a lot like taking notes and and just a lot of of it Mm. stays with you so congratulations on on a great job and your success so far again we've been talking to director bruce gladwin and actor and co-writer scott price from the film shadow which is premiering at south by southwest in 2022
0: Thanks to our friends at Lost Republic Whiskey for sponsoring the podcast. You can find them at lostrepub.com or find it at your local pub or bottle shop and tell them that Bitch Talk sent you.
1: If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to
0: podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com.
1: This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Erin Lim.
0: My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show is edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions.